0: and stay standing, grab your Bibles, and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Pastor Mike is obviously not here this morning, and whenever he's gone, I'm always reminded of how thankful I am for him, for his work to prepare uh, God's Word for us each week, week after week, month after month, year after year, verse after verse. He doesn't have the advantage that I do here today to just cherry-pick the most preachable passages in the Bible. Uh, He just preaches what comes next, and I'm thankful for him that that he does that. But this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. So starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I shall be like him, says the Holy One. "'Lift up your eyes on high and see. "'Who created these? "'Who brings out the host by number, "'calling them all by name, "'by the greatness of his might? "'And because he is strong in power, "'not one is missing. "'Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? "'My way is hidden from the Lord, "'and my right is disregarded by my God. "'Have you not known? "'Have you not heard? "'The Lord is the everlasting God, "'the creator of the ends of the earth. "'He does not faint or grow weary.' His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for... A picture of who you are. God, I pray that you would use your words this morning to paint an ever clearer picture to each of us as to who you are and in that that we would love and trust and follow you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was probably five or six years old, my mom would assign to us Verses to memorize, but she'd give different verses to different siblings, and probably the earliest verse I can remember that was assigned to me was Matthew 6:33, "But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you." It's a verse that has resonated with me throughout the years, even what I remember from when I was five or six years old. But probably when she assigned that verse My brother, Aaron, uh, would have been maybe about four years old at the time. He would have been the only other sibling at that point probably capable of memorizing verses. And she would give each of us different verses. And she gave him the verse Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I wasn't about to let my brother learn something that I wasn't learning. So I went ahead and memorized that one too. Probably a lot of you have as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths or He will keep your paths straight. For years, I've loved both of those verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I've looked at and often thought of that the word that's in all caps, like the main point, the main word of those verses is the word trust, it seems to be a verse all about trust, trust in the Lord, and trust was the emphasis. But as I thought about that verse and studied this week in Isaiah 40, I've come to the conclusion that I think the main point of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, the main words are not, it's not trust so much as it is the Lord. Well, the word is Yahweh or Jehovah. It's who we're trusting in. If we saw God as He really is, there would be no need to call to trust. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. says, he has a vision and he says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Isaiah has this vision of Jesus in the temple and there are seraphim flying around Him with six wings each, Two wings covering their face, two wings covering their feet, and with two wings they flew, and they were crying out in a loud voice, Holy, holy, holy. And they were crying out so loudly that the foundations of the temple were shaking, and the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah, the prophet of God, falls to the ground and says, Woe is me! I am ruined, I am undone, I am falling apart, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah saw Jesus in his glory, and he was brought to his knees. But then right after that, verse eight, God says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? What does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. God didn't make an appeal to Isaiah and say, Isaiah, trust me. Now who's gonna go for me? Isaiah, I need you to trust me on this. Now who's gonna go for me? Will you go, Isaiah? He just said, who's, who, will, who will go? And Isaiah's like, I don't know what you want me to do, where I have to go, Send me. See, when we see God clearly, there's no need to call for trust. The point is, see the Lord clearly, and we're just going to trust. There's not going to be anybody in heaven running all around in eternal paradise telling everybody, come on, guys, we need to trust in the Lord more. We need to trust God. You know, we're going to see Him for what He is, and we are going to trust Him It's going to be a natural reaction to seeing all that God is. How we imagine God determines the weight of our trust in Him. How we imagine God determines the weight of our trust in Him. Now, the word imagine might not sit right with you. Some of you may flinch when I say that. I don't mean to imply that you can make up or imagine your own version of God. He is as He is. But our capacity to fully understand Him with our limited logic and intellect brings us to the point where we want to try to understand Him as truthfully, as truthfully as we can, and we have to go to the very edges of our imagination, our, our, our stretching to try to understand Him. How we imagine God determines the weight of our trust in Him. We can know lots of things about God, but then there's a translation of what we know into what we actually believe, what we rest in. And then there's this, this business of remembering. We seem to forget often who God is and understand what we're placing our, we forget what what we're placing our trust in. And don't we now more than ever need to trust in the Lord? We live in a broken world and the consequences of sin in the world has resulted in the whole universe being broken and the broken universe leads to broken lives, broken careers, financial problems. Sicknesses, relationship disasters, stress, worry, anxiety, depression, all of these things are rampant in our world and in our lives. So, where do we turn? To ourselves? To somebody else? Or to the creator and sustainer of the universe? The answer may seem obvious when I put it like that, but our trust in Almighty God is only placed when we actually see and believe that. He is a better option than we are ourselves or anybody around us. Functionally, we declare what we see as our best option by who we actually trust when trials hit, when the rug is pulled out, when it comes right down to it and there's nowhere else to turn, who do you turn to? That brings us to Isaiah 40. The context is this Chapter 39, Isaiah prophesied that Judah would be going into exile becoming captives of the Babylonian empire. And there at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah prophesied and said, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So here's Isaiah with all kinds of good news for Judah saying, guess what? You're going to be taken to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Understandably, this news would have been wildly distressing for the nation. So in chapter 40, Isaiah is addressing the distress. And he starts off there in verse 1. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is intended to be a comfort to God's people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Their captivity is a result of their sin, but God will provide a way of escape. He assures them that his final purpose is not their death and destruction. There would be exile, but the Lord will make a provision for forgiveness and restoration. And it is this hope that is to provide comfort to them. Then there's a call to prepare for the rescue, to prepare for the provision. Verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and a rough place. And the rough places a plain. Essentially, this is a call to prepare hearts to receive God. Prepare hearts for the redemption. Prepare your heart to see Him. And John the Baptist came in the New Testament and quoted from this passage and made a call to the people to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. Prepare your hearts for the salvation that is to come. And then in verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What will be revealed? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Why does God save? God saves to reveal His glory. In the salvation of His people, His glory is revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. God does not save us simply for our own sake. He saves for His own glory, a glory that He wants the whole world to see. It's a really important factor in our world today. There are those who are preaching contrary to this in many churches across America and around the world. There are those who would preach that Jesus went to the cross not primarily because of sin, but in order to show you how valuable you are. I don't have any other way to put it other than to say that's a false gospel, Jesus went to the cross to save people, but he went to the cross to save people to show how great he is, to show how worthy of praise he is, to display his glory. The cross is about the glory of Jesus. We are saved, and we desperately need to be saved, and he loves us immensely, eternally, beyond our our comprehension. But let's get the order straight. The cross is about Jesus and his glory, first of all. When Jesus saves. When God saves, it's for His glory. It's why we sing songs here that are primarily pointed towards proclaiming who God is and worshiping Him as opposed to proclaiming what we get from God. There is a place to proclaim and to sing about what we get from God, and we certainly do sing some songs like that, but the weight of the songs that we sing are about who God is and worshiping Him because anything that God has done for us should turn us right around and proclaim his goodness and his glory and his majesty. It's about his glory. And then continuing in verse 6, Isaiah sets up a contrast that becomes really important for the rest of our time here. He says, A voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? And the answer is, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are Grass. People are temporal. We live a certain number of years or decades. We come and go, but our time on earth is short. But then he says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See the contrast between people and God, between people and his word? God's word is forever. His truth is forever. He is forever. And it's this contrast between our human frailty and God's ultimate eternality that Isaiah provides the foundation for hope. The foundation for hope. The foundation for hope that will not shake, will not wobble, will not crack, will not crumble, will not weaken, will not fall, will not fail. And here's what it is. God is God, and you are not. To those who do not belong to God that statement may sound abrasive. But it's true. And those who do belong to God, for them, that statement is the basis for all hope. It's good news that there is strength and power and might and control and sovereignty and goodness and love and grace and comfort that goes well beyond me. Because if my hope stopped with me, then my hope would stop. So we come to verse 9, and Isaiah makes his case. He says this, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towers of Judah, Here is your God. Behold your God. Shout it out. Behold your God. And then he starts to tell you about your God. Verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. The words here are like power, rules, mighty arm, describing God. Do you see God in this way? You see him as majestic and mighty, all powerful, ruling. This is a big God. But pay attention to the full picture of God's character in this passage. Look at the very next verse, verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. It's The very next verse, after power and ruling and um, mighty arm, the very next verse, it says that he's tending the flock like a shepherd. He's gathering lambs in his arms, close to his heart, he's gently leading You see God in this way? Do You see him as gentle and loving and caring, personal. I think we all have an inclination to gravitate toward one perspective or another in how we see God. Big, strong, powerful, ruling, or gentle, loving, caring, personal. Have a full picture of God's character. See him for all that he is. Whatever side is, is less natural for you, Work to see that side of God and develop that view of God in your, in your study of, of his word and in your relationship with him. If you tend to see him as big, strong, powerful, and sovereign, make sure you also see him as loving, caring, personal, gentle. And if you see him as loving, caring, personal, and gentle, work to see him as big, strong, powerful, and sovereign. Have a whole picture of God. Isaiah lays out both sides of God right from the beginning here. And then he continues focusing now on the majesty and greatness and bigness of God. And verse 12, here is your God. He goes on and he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, God doesn't really have a hand. Not, God's not physical. But Isaiah is trying to help us get an understanding of who God is, how God is. And so he, he gives this picture. And So imagine you're standing at Newport Beach and you're, you're standing out on the on the beach, looking out toward the Pacific Ocean. And this massive hand comes down from the heavens and scoops up the entire Pacific Ocean in the palm of his hand and holds it. God measures the ocean in his hand. In the same way that you might scoop up water from the sink in the morning to wash your face, God scoops up the waters of the ocean to measure them. It's a picture of the the grand scale of God. God is God, and you are not. Isaiah continues and says, Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. He measures the heavens with the span of his hand. This next week is the draft for NFL football. And scouts have been working for months, evaluating all the players, especially the quarterbacks. And they want to know everything about each one of them. They want to know their height and their weight and how much can they bench and how far can they jump, how fast can they run the 40. But with The quarterbacks especially, they want to know one thing. They want to know what's the span of their hand. A bigger hand can hold the football better and can theoretically throw a football better. And the difference of a half inch or an inch in the span of a quarterback's hand can make a big difference. God's hand spans the entire universe I don't know about you, but it just seems a little silly to me to be thinking about these scouts worried about an extra half inch on a quarterback's hand when compared to the size of God's hand. He uses his hand to measure the span of the universe. God is God, and you are not. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? God puts the dust of the earth in his little measuring cup and taps it down. He measures all of the dust of the earth in that way. He weighs the Rocky Mountains and the Alps on his bathroom scale. It's all like household chores. It's routine. It's not a great feat. He created it all. He holds it all. He measures it all. He weighs it all. And Isaiah is using this language to make the reader feel small. The whole universe is small For God. The whole universe is small for God. How much smaller are you? God is God and you are not. Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? God cannot be fully understood. He cannot be instructed, he cannot be taught, he cannot learn, he does not use focus groups, he does not misunderstand, he does not get confused, he knows all, he understands all, he has all wisdom, he has all insight, he cannot be intimidated, he cannot be manipulated, he is not subject to opinion polls, He's not subject to approval ratings, he does not have rivals, he does not have needs, God is God and you are not. And he And continues in verse 15 he says surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket they are red, regarded as dust on the scales he holds the oceans in his hands and then if he were to put them in a bucket and and uh were to measure the the people of the earth they'd be like a drop in that bucket 7.3 billion people on earth are like a drop in god's bucket he holds the oceans and the people like a drop of that water 7.3 billion people are like dust he says He measures the Himalayas on his scale, and then he moves the Himalayas off, and he puts the Andes on the scale. And he takes that off, and there's a little bit of dust left on the scale, and that dust is like the 7.3 billion people on earth. Just a little dust left on God's scale. 7.3 billion people. You're one person. God is God, and you are not. He weighs the coastlands or the islands as though they were fine dust. Same with the islands. It's like they're specks of dust, almost as if they could be a nuisance. God is God and you are not. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires or for fuel. Lebanon, the great land of forests where there's an overwhelming abundance of cedar trees. And this is known throughout the Middle East. Durable wood that was desirable for building and for burning. Cedar makes just about the best natural kindling you can get. It splits easily, lights easily, burns hot. Imagine all of this cedar from the forests of Lebanon all piled up into one massive, huge fire as an altar to God. It's not enough. It's not enough. God is God and you are not. Nor its animals, the animals of Lebanon, enough for burnt offerings. All the animals of the forest, not enough to offer as offerings on an altar to God. He is worthy of of so much more. God is God, and you are not. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The worth of the whole world is nothing. It's less than nothing. Back in the 1980s, there was a man who had debts that were $900 million more than his assets. For those of you who are not accounting majors, That's bad. (laughs) He was walking down the street in Manhattan one day with a friend, and he saw a homeless man begging. And he turned to his friend and he said, that man is $900 million richer than I am. The homeless man was worth nothing. The other man had a negative net worth of $900 million. He was worth less than nothing. God regards the value of all humanity as less than nothing. Romans 3, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Now this doesn't mean that we're insignificant. We're going to come back to this. But what it does mean is compared to God, we are worth less than nothing. There is no comparison. God is God. And you are not with whom then will you compare God to what image will you liken him Isaiah sets up the picture he's described God as holding the waters measuring the heavens weighing the mountains with all knowledge with all wisdom with all understanding and he says with whom then will you compare God who is his right rival and the answer is laughable if it's anybody other than God there is no rival Verse 19, as for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and, and fashions silver chains for it. He describes the manufacturing here of an idol. And that's contrasted by the reality that God cannot be grasped, let alone manufactured. Verse 20, a person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that would rot. They look for a, they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple, will not fall over. He describes an attempt to build an altar, that, or I'm sorry, to, to build an idol that just won't fall over, that won't topple. And against the backdrop of all that he's described God to be, it's foolishness to see anything or anyone as an alternative to God infinite God. God is God, and you are not. Verse 21 Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Do you get it? Do you understand the difference between you and God? Do you understand? Do you get it? Do you understand what he's saying? Verse 22 says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Kevin DeYoung says, He sits above the earth, using it as a footstool to prop up his divine legs. He looks down and sees us little grasshoppers anxiously chirping, flirting, floating, and flapping our wings about in a flurry of activity. We are so small and so concerned. God is God and you are not. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, he says in verse 22, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He opens the heavens like you would open the curtains in the morning. He spreads out the skies like they're his own personal tent. God is God and you are not. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. The world's highest authorities are nothing under God's ultimate rule. Kings, presidents, nothing governments, terrorist leaders, dictators, nothing. New legislation was passed passed this week in the California State Assembly. It's going to the State Senate of California where it very likely will be passed. Depending on who you ask, this legislation could ultimately lead to the banning of the publication and sale of the Bible in the state of California. State assemblies, senates, nothing. They are nothing before God. No legislation can thwart his purposes, his plans, his word. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And speaking of these princes or the world leaders or governments, Isaiah goes on and he says, No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. None will stand one moment longer than God desires, than God decrees. And what about God's word? Remember back in verses 7 and 8 the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God what will stand forever? I'm not worried about California banning Bibles. God is God, and you are not. He asks again in verse 25, "To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal?" says the Holy One. The answer is clear: there is no comparison. There is no equal. God is God and you are not. Lift up, to you, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. There are a lot of stars in the sky. How do those stars compared to the grains of sand on the earth. And you've probably heard this discussed in different ways before. But as reported by National Public Radio, a group of researchers at the University of Hawaii says this, if you assume a grain of sand has an average size and you calculate how many grains are in a teaspoon and then multiply by all the beaches and deserts of the world, the earth has roughly 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand in the world. Or... Another way to say that is there are seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the beaches and in the desert. Does that clear that up? Another way to think about that is that's 75 with 17 zeros after it. Now, I want you to remember that number, okay? So we're going to practice. It's 75 with how many zeros? 17 zeros. 75 with 17 zeros after it. Hold that number in your head, however you do that. On a very clear night in the mountains, if you look up to the sky, you might see several thousand stars. According to UC Santa Barbara, there are 10 billion galaxies approximately in the universe. And it's estimated that there are on average 100 billion stars in each galaxy. I'll do the math for you. So there's 1 billion trillion stars. How many is that? Well, that's one septillion stars. Does that help? How about there's a one with 24 zeros after it, stars in the universe. How many grains of sand are there? 75 with 17 zeros. 24 is more than 17. Or Let me do a little bit more math for you. There are 133,000 stars in the sky, For every grain of sand on the beaches and the deserts of the world. 133,000 stars. Now you want to start to get an idea of the bigness of God. Our sun is an average size star and it's 333,000 times bigger than earth. And so there are 133,000 average sized stars like that for every grain of sand on the earth. For every person on earth, there are more than 100 trillion stars. So pick out your hundred trillion, and those can be yours, and everybody gets to pick a hundred trillion. By the way, there are more molecules in ten drops of water than there are stars in all the heavens. Let just that blow your brain. But back to the stars, there are a lot of stars. Here's the thing. He calls them each by name. Not one is missing, it says. He knows them all. He's named them all. God is massively Big, but he knows every single star by name. And note this, the second edition of the 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary contains entries for 171,000 words in current use and another 47,000 words that are considered obsolete. In other words, there are less than a quarter million words, both current and obsolete, in the English language. Less than a quarter of a million words in the English language. Consider the scope of the heavenly vocabulary. God has named one septillion stars. Our entire language only has less than 250,000 words. God is God, and you are not. But He knows the stars, and He knows you. Remember verse 11? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. God is infinitely big and he intimately cares for you individually. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You're worth nothing compared to God, but you're worth a lot more than the birds. And God cares for the birds. God cares for the stars. You're worth a lot more. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? God cares about you. Jesus said in Luke 11, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? inexpensive cheap sparrows not one is forgotten by God how much more does he know you why even the hairs of your head are all numbered fear not you are of much more value than many sparrows God is massive and powerful and yet he stoops to know you to love you to be intimately aware of every detail of your life to want the best for you to care for you Now, if you're paying attention, this brings up a really big problem. Theologians refer to this as the problem of theodicy. God is massively all-powerful. God is massively good and loving. Bad things happen. Evil exists. Suffering exists. How can God be all-powerful and all-good if there's bad things? If he's all-powerful and he's all-good, he wouldn't let the bad things happen. So if bad things happen, God either must be not all-powerful or not all-good or he must not exist. It's referred to as the problem of theodicy. There are really good explanations for this when we understand who God is. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul draws a comparison between the suffering now and the glory that is to come, and he says they don't compare. And all of this can be summed up, and we can explain this problem of theodicy, and I'll unpack this for a minute, but it's all summed up in one phrase. God is the gospel. God is the gospel. What do I mean by that? Matthew Ma and Alyssa Solano are getting married in just over a month. Just over a month from now, Matthew's going to be standing up in front of a group of people. He's going to be waiting. And Alyssa is going to be walking down the aisle. And Matthew's going to see Alyssa And I guarantee you, Matthew is going to be very excited. And I guarantee you what Matthew is going to be thinking in that moment is not, Alyssa's going to make really good dinners. He's not going to be thinking, Alyssa's going to get me great presents for my birthday. He's not going to be thinking, well, at least Alyssa's going to make the bed every day. He's not going to be thinking about what Alyssa is going to do for him. He's going to be thinking, that's Alyssa. I want her. I want to be with her. She's the prize, not what she's going to do for him. I want to know her. She's the prize. The ultimate prize is God himself. God is the prize. So when we're saved, we're not just saved from wrath but we're saved to be given the ultimate prize. The glory that is to come is to be in the presence of God without taint or contamination of sin, with great joy. Our hope is not in what God does for us or will do for us. It's that we get God. He's the source of goodness and joy. But what keeps us from Him is sin. He's perfect. He's righteous. He must punish sin. And because he's righteous, he has to treat everyone and everything rightly, as it deserves to be treated. So when we live as if God is not the most valuable thing in the universe, when we live as if God is anything less than what he is, then we are unrighteous. We're not valuing God as he should be valued. And since he is righteous, he has to act accordingly. What are the consequences of offending a God that's so great? What are the consequences of treating God as nothing when we're the ones by comparison who are nothing? He's an infinite God and our offense then is an infinite offense. If the consequence is anything other than infinite punishment, then God is not righteous and God is not God. But he is an infinite God and so we are owed an infinite offense. Infinite punishment, or we're owed infinite punishment. That means... That instead of getting the ultimate prize, God himself, we get eternal wrath forever. Or, there has to be an infinite substitute. The only infinite substitute is God himself, God in the flesh, Jesus. Jesus died in our place. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God died to ransom us, to purchase us from slavery, to sin, which keeps us from him, keeps us from the ultimate prize. He didn't save us just to keep us from punishment, but he saved us to bring us to him. But here's the problem. We don't naturally want God. We don't naturally want Jesus. We live in contaminated bodies and we don't naturally understand that the glory that is to come is better than the suffering or is not to be compared to the suffering that we have now. We like our sinful state. We like to be self-reliant, we trust in ourselves. We don't understand what Paul is talking about when he says, "I consider the sufferings this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us." But Paul goes on and he says, "And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. He works all things together for good. What's the good? Well, the answer to that question is the key to everything. What is the good, the good? It says in the very next verses is that we would be glorified, that we would be in the presence of his glory without sin because he's the prize. The good is that we get to be with him. He's the prize, he's the source of joy, he's the source of everything. So God is going to cause all things to work together toward that end for his children. He works everything to bring us to the point where we who don't naturally want Jesus, he will supernaturally interfere with our lives so that we would want Jesus because that is where ultimate joy is. That's what's best for us. And that includes the suffering of this world. Yes, at its core, suffering and evil come from the reality that the world is broken because of sin. But God allows suffering and uses it in our lives for the purpose of causing those who belong to Him to see Him as their only hope to bring us to the end of our rope and to see past ourselves and see him as Isaiah describes him, to see him as the greatest treasure, to see God as the gospel, as the ultimate prize. So when we suffer, when there's pain, when there's heartache, it's to bring us to the point where we realize that it's beyond us. The trust we have in ourselves or in other people is not sufficient to address our needs. Our biggest need is that our sin separates us from the author of joy and love. We are objects of his wrath and we see how hopeless our situation really is. Only then can we see his radical solution. Only then can we embrace Jesus as our only hope, as the one who died in our place to solve our biggest problem. God uses this broken world to drive people to the cross, to cling to him. Back in Isaiah, Isaiah says in verse 27, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say Israel my way is hidden from the Lord my cause is disregarded by my God Do you feel that sometimes? God, do you see what's going on here? God, do you see what I'm dealing with? Do you see what I'm going through? God, are you paying attention to what's happening here? Sometimes we may feel like that. He's an infinite God, but he intimately cares about each one of us. And Isaiah comes back hard in verse 28. He says, "Do you not know? Have you not heard?" Don't you know? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. and his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, not in themselves, not in others, not in another God, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Hope in God. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 42, he came to a place of despondency in life. His world was crashing around him. And finally, he came to a place where he proclaimed over and over throughout that chapter, Psalm 42, over and over, he says to his own soul, he says, soul, hope in God. By the way, if you go in the high school room, we have that written across the wall, really, really big. We need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. Soul, hope in God. Find your joy in the one who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand, who measures the mountains on his bathroom scale, who is beyond being instructed. Find your joy in him. Pursue him. Obey him. Trust your eternity with him. Worship him. Hope in him. Are you uncertain? You don't know what to do? God is God, and you are not. Hope in God. Are you unsure of your future? Worried about the twists and turns of life? God is God and you are not hope in him? Are you desperately wanting answers, wanting to know what will happen? God is God, and you are not hope in God. Do you feel inadequate, unable to do what needs to be done? God is God, and you are not hope in God. Are you sorrowful, sad? Do you have a heavy heart? He is almighty, and he is gentle towards you. God is God, you are not, hope in God. Are you anxious and afraid, facing overwhelming obstacles? God is God, you are not, hope in God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Straight to him and he's the ultimate prize. Lord, thank you for your word that shows us who you are. God, would you conform our thinking and our affections to be in line with who you are, that we would want you, that we would trust you. God, That the thought of not trusting you would not even be an option because we would see you so clearly. God, would you uh, make that truth abundantly clear to each of us and that we would go from here as a people who would trust you and proclaim you that our hope would be in you and that you would be glorified as a result. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.